have a mark where the nails have been. Just think about all the different gods that people worship. And think about our God and what he did for us and uh, who he really is. We've been taking uh, these weeks up to Christmas for those of you who are visiting with us and kind of asking the question, you know, who really is the God that Jesus revealed? Because a lot of people, when you ask them, you know, do you believe in God? They say yes. And then you say, well, tell me about the God you believe in. What's he like? And they just go blank. And so we've been taking some time this Christmas season, and I hope that, um, that Christmas was uh, joyful for you. I hope that the reality of the God who's really there and what he did for us and what he accomplished for us and the salvation that he provides for us uh, actually put more joy in your soul uh, this particular Christmas. Uh, his name is Emmanuel, the Bible says. God says his name's going to be Emmanuel, which will mean God with us, the God of creation, the most powerful being you can imagine, emptying himself, humbling himself, and becoming a baby like all of us, coming into the world just like we came into the world uh, through a birth. Because God wanted to convince us that he loves us. He really does love us. And you know, love and power are like opposite ideas. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in any relationship, in a marriage relationship, you know, uh, whoever has the most love has the least amount of power. Because love is about serving. And God wanted to convince us that he loves us. Here's what I know, first of all, about the God that we worship. He loves you. And how do I know? Well, because he came among us to love us. Now, the Bible, we sang about it this morning. He's coming back. When he comes back, he's coming in power, the Bible says. Right? In fact, the display of power that the Bible describes uh, goes on, the, the, God goes on to say that every single knee will bow and every single tongue will confess to the glory of God that Jesus is Lord because they'll just be overwhelmed with the power. But he came the first time in love. When he returns, he'll come in power. But he came the first time in love. And um, for now, people have to decide, am I going to let him love me or not? Will I accept his love? Will I appreciate his love? Will I value? Will I believe that he really does love me or not? God came to us the same way that everybody comes into the world so that he could relate to us and we could relate to him. He understands what it's like to be human, to be one of us. So when you think about the God you believe in, the question I'd like to pose for us this morning to consider on this last day of 2014 um, is... Is this God understanding? Is the God that you worship understanding, or is he rigid? Is he all reason, all black and white, no gray? Or does he have a heart? And can his heart be influenced by you and by me? Does this God understand what it means to be a human being? Does he understand us? Um, We've already looked at the fact that he's holy and he's righteous and he's powerful and he's perfect and, and so on and so forth. But does that mean that he's aloof, that he's removed? Uh, does that mean that um, he's unable to understand us, that he's unrelatable to us? Or does he understand us? Now, the classic passage is in Hebrews chapter 4. And I read a couple of verses here, Hebrews 4, beginning at verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have somebody who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Does the God that you worship, the God that you know, the God that you understand, does he understand you? Um, This Jesus, who is God with us, sympathizes with our weaknesses, our fears, our broken dreams, our limitations, sympathizes with our struggles, our troubles, our hurts, our temptation. What does it mean to sympathize with someone? Sympathy. What is it? I would suggest to you that um, to have sympathy or to sympathize with someone is to connect with someone or to share with someone in, in a relationship to the point where what affects one person affects the other. What does it mean to sympathize with somebody? It means to be connected to somebody in such a way that whatever's affecting them then begins to affect you in the same way. And here we're told that the God of the universe who came to us in the person of Christ, Emmanuel, is one who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to grieve. Watch him lose his friend Lazarus and go there to the tomb and cry when Lazarus died. Jesus knows what it's like to sweat out some assignment from God that you're really nervous about. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane and watch Jesus sweat drops of blood as he anticipates going to the cross. Jesus knows what it feels like to be hated and to be taunted by enemies. People who are trying to trick him and trap him and try to undo him and try to dismiss him and try to get rid of him. Jesus knows what it feels like to be uh, hated. He knows what it feels like to be tempted as the enemy Satan tempted him uh, directly. And Jesus knows what it's like to be frustrated by other people. Think of the Pharisees and Jesus' ongoing uh, battle with the Pharisees. And so in previous weeks, we've talked about, you know, the omnis of God. We talked about he's omnipotent or omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. We talked about the fact that he's omniscient, that he's, you know, he knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows everything. We talked about the fact that he's omnipresent, uh, that he's much closer than we think. He's not distant. He's not far away. He's not apathetic, but he's close by. And he's our high priest, we read here in Hebrews chapter 4. The high priest was the one who uh, offered the one sacrifice that would be acceptable to cover people's sins for the year. Did it on the highest day of the year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And only the high priest could present that sacrifice and that offering. Uh, The priests were appointed by God to be mediators between God and people. And only the high priest could offer that sacrifice, which Jesus ultimately did on the cross, freeing us from our guilt and our shame in the presence of God. God understands our need. He understands uh, what it's like to be human. The 103rd Psalm, where we were um, reading from this morning, uh, I don't know if you caught it, but In verses 13 and 14, um, does God really understand? Uh, Here's what we read together. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For 
As for man, his days are like, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we're made out of dust. Remember when God created us? He created us out of the dust of the earth. He understands that we're human. I worry sometimes that uh, people uh, perhaps grow up with fathers who are pretty black and white, no gray. Uh, people who are uh, fathers who are kind of rigid and kind of lay down the law, lay down the rules. And then they get to thinking about God as a father and they just automatically assume that God is a God who is kind of stoic. Uh, God is a God who is kind of, you know, all reason, no heart, no compassion, uh, no feelings, and uh, that God is not able to really understand what it's like. And so it creates distance between the God who's reaching out to us in the person of Christ and trying to draw us to himself, the God who can sympathize and empathize and identify with us, and um, ourselves. Uh, The Psalms are filled with this, uh, Psalm 91 as well, the first couple of verses. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He'll cover you with his pinions and under his wings you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Verse 15. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be uh, with him in trouble. I will rescue him, and I will honor him. This God that we worship, this God that we talk about, the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, what's he really like? You might remember uh, way back in the very beginning when God first tried to set up his people, the Jewish people, he took them out of Egypt, you remember, and they crossed the Red Sea, and and, uh, they were wandering around for a while, and the first five books of the Bible... Uh, God gives them uh, a lot of wisdom about all the different kinds of situations that they might face together as they try to live in community as a nation. And one of the things that um, God uh, talked about or that God insisted on uh, that he commanded is that the people would build cities of refuge. Do you remember that? Uh, God intended for the people to appoint six different cities that he called cities of refuge. And they were designed to be safe places for people. A refuge is just a a safe place. It's a shelter. It's a a place of protection. And basically, um, back in those days, um, and I don't think it's all that different today. If we just watch the news, we see this at work all the time. In um, Exodus chapter 21, here's how it kind of went. Um, Verse 12 says, you know, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. If you kill somebody... Uh, your punishment should be that you should be put to death. Uh, But if you didn't lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into your hand, then I'll appoint for you a place to which he may flee, a city of refuge. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And so here God is kind of setting up, uh, you you know, the law of retribution. A little further on in the same chapter, verse 23 says... Well, let me start at verse 22. It says, when two men strive together and they hit a pregnant woman and her children come out, but there's no harm, the one who hit her shall be fined as the woman's husband shall impose and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. If the baby dies, you die. Uh, if the baby loses an eye, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe, it's the law of retaliation. And I think it was designed to keep people from going overboard and overreacting and to keep the response to those kinds of things that would happen in in living together um, 
to keep them under control. And so God revealed, you know, this is kind of the law of retribution. And then um, in Numbers, uh, God sets up these cities of refuge, which I think are uh, kind of a, if you want to know the mind of God, if you want to know how God really thinks, uh, you might say that you could, um, you could just go to these cities and understand that God has a place in his heart um, for, for people who are in trouble, that God understands. In Numbers chapter um, 35, uh, he talks about these cities of refuge. And again, I think they're a reflection of him. And again, I wonder, you know, do we know this God in that way? Is he our refuge? Is he a safe God for you? Do you run to him when you feel vulnerable? Because he's safe. Because you trust him. Because you know he understands. Um, Verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses and he said, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you'll select cities of refuge for you that the manslayer who kills a person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment and so on. If somebody killed somebody, um, there was a a blood avenger that was appointed, usually the closest male relative. And the closest male relative would go after the person who killed your relative uh, to exact the law of retaliation. If he killed uh, your uncle, you went and killed him and took his life back and And so on. And and so God makes this city of refuge uh, for people who accidentally kill somebody. Um, There's accidents that happen, right? And uh, when we try to live together and we try to be a community together in um, Joshua, in Joshua chapter 20, again, city of refuge, uh, there's another reference here. And I think uh, this explains it in the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. You know, you live in a broken world. You live in a fallen world. Things happen. And when somebody kills somebody accidentally, if there's a car accident on the on I-95 or something like that, um, what, what should happen to the person who just took your relative's life? Well, God designed these cities of refuge. And he said, the manslayer who strikes a person without intent or unknowingly may flee there, and they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. And he shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of the city. There'll be some people who will listen. You ever form an opinion about somebody or something or make a judgment about some moral issue and then sit down and talk to the person and let them explain their case and all of a sudden find that your opinion totally changes? Or do you think God is like, I've got these rigid sets of rules and you know what? I don't really care what the story is. I don't care really how it happened. You killed him in the car accident. You're done. Out. And then we're afraid to even approach God. And God says, no, I understand that sometimes accidents happen. Sometimes things happen, and I'm going to create these uh, cities of refuge, and they'll take him to the city, and he'll have a chance to explain his situation, tell it from his side. Somebody will take the time to listen. Uh, Somebody will care. I'm a God who cares and understands. I see everything that goes on. I understand why people make bad decisions. Not that I'm excusing them, not that I'm, but I understand them. And so God makes provision for them. 
And uh, he says, you know, uh, he, he, the person could remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, uh, until the death of uh, whoever the high priest is at the time, and the manslayer then can return to his own town, uh, to his own home and to the town from uh, which he fled and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, just one more passage, Deuteronomy. In um, Deuteronomy, there's an example here that's close to my heart because it's about uh, two guys who go out to cut wood in the woods. And, um, you know, the axe flies off the handle and hits one guy in the head and he dies. And, uh, you know, this is an example of the kinds of things that happen. And I say to myself, well, you know, that might not sound totally relevant to different people, but if you watch the news and you watch what's happening between the black community and the police departments across our country and you ask yourself, what is really going on here? Is there any room anywhere, you know, for somebody to understand what happened and to listen long enough uh, to respond in, in ways that are proper um, without creating more problems, you know? Um, so, um, verse 4, uh, Deuteronomy 19, verse 4, this is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. If anybody kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in the past, as when somebody goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he may flee to one of these cities and live. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him uh, because, of the long, uh, because the way is long and uh, strike him fatally, though a man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past and so on and so forth. Does God understand that things happen in the world in which we live because we live in a broken, fallen world? And is your understanding of the God that you worship and your relationship with God such of such a nature that when you feel vulnerable or when something happens that makes you, uh, you, you know, uh, guilty in somebody else's eyes, do you find in God somebody who understands, a refuge, a safe place, a safe person? A safe person. Um, God himself is our refuge, a safe place. God does understand. Vengeance is mine, God says. I know the motives of people. I know the thoughts of people. I know the experiences of people. You know, other people don't always understand. And they form opinions rather quickly. And they make judgments rather quickly. And they don't always want to bother to take the time to sit down and listen to the story. Think about divorce situations that you've been involved with in family or whatever, friends. And we don't really want to take the time to sit down and listen to, you know, the hurt and the pain that's been behind all of this. We just want to say, you know, just don't do it and move on. But does God, the God you worship, does he understand? Is God a safe place for us? Is he a refuge? Is he a safe person? Is God a God of understanding? Are you able to go to God with your weaknesses? And then not only that, but ask yourself this question. If this is the God we really worship, and you know, so many times we've tried to uh, make this point that whatever you worship, you become like. Are you a person who understands? Are you a reflection of God into the world in which God has placed us? Are you a person who understands? Are you becoming like God? Are you a safe person? Are you a refuge where people, when they're hurting, can come? 
and find a safe place and find a, a safe you know, uh, person, a, a safe uh, person who will understand. There are some people who just aren't safe, right? There are unsafe people, a couple of unsafe people that I've learned over the years. Um, unsafe people, I think, uh, one type of unsafe person, it seems to me, is, is people who are abandoners, uh, people who know how to start a relationship but don't know how to finish one. And they just abandon you. They just get to a certain point in the relationship. And they, I don't know how many women I've talked to who thought, you know, they were progressing in a relationship with a guy or whatever. And all of a sudden, the guy just abandons them, maybe for somebody else or something like that. And all of a sudden, this person becomes, you know, very vulnerable. Jesus says, you know, I will never leave you or forsake you. It's unsafe if you're an abandoner, right? It, it hurts. It creates pain in other people. I think another a kind of unsafe person is irresponsible. An irresponsible. An irresponsible person is people who just don't take care of themselves. They don't follow through on commitments. Uh, Their words can't be trusted. Uh, They're like children, only in older bodies. And they they just live in the present. They're fun people, some of these people. I don't know how many wives I've talked to who say, you know, I'm married to this guy, and he's a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed him. But you know what? He's just totally irresponsible. He won't go to work. He won't do this. He won't do that. He doesn't provide. He doesn't take care of the kids. He doesn't. But he's fun. He's like stuck at 16, you know, irresponsible, unsafe. Not a safe kind of person to be around. Another person that I think is unsafe is the, I call him the constant critic. The person who's always critical. Uh, The judgmental person. Uh, They speak the truth, but they don't speak love. Do you know the type? It's the kind of person who's always in a one-up relationship. They're always like a parent when they talk to you. They're always like up and you're always like one step down. And they're, they're just critical all the time. And a lot of people, if you grow up with a person like that, you get the idea that God is like that. That God is sitting up in heaven, this judgmental critic that's just looking for, if you just step one iota out of line, he's just looking for an excuse to come down and pounce on you and destroy you. And so we keep our distance. That's not the God that Jesus came to reveal. The God that Jesus revealed is a God who understands. He's a God who's safe. He's a God who's a a refuge. God is, I think, by his very nature, a protector. A protector. Uh, In the Psalms, the Psalms are loaded with this kind of, you know, the invitation comes to us in the Psalms. And and God, I think, invites us to trust him in this kind of a, a routine. In Psalm 34, verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. When you cry out to God, he hears, and he delivers people out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Would you say that's been your experience in 2014? Or are you thinking, well, you know, I don't really think about God like, like that, like, like a refuge and like understanding. I don't really... Reach out to him when I'm vulnerable and, you know, I, I'm trying to live independent. I'm trying to live self-sufficient. I'm an American and I'm a male and, I, you know, I can do it myself. I don't, I don't need to live in dependence upon God. One of the ways that sin really messes with people is it teaches us to deny our dependency on God. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden and when sin first came on the scene, the, the enemy came to our original parents and said, look, you can be like God yourself. You don't need to depend on him. Be your own God. Be self-sufficient. Be independent. 
And in the American way of thinking, man, well, we just feed right into that. Yep, yep, weird. And sin deceives us into thinking that we're not really that dependent on God. And God says, I'm here for you. I understand. Reach out to me. And I will fill you with myself. Psalm 62 is another uh, psalm where uh, we read about this. For, uh, verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. You can't find a safer person than God. You can't find a safer refuge, a safer place. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge, a safe place for us. God understands. God knows what it's like to be human. God emptied himself of his power so that he could come and love in the person of Jesus at Christmas time, so that he could convince people that he really does love us. And when we don't think that God understands and we try to live this self-sufficient posture, um, and, and it changes when we come to know the God that we're worshiping through Jesus, and we get to this posture of dependency that I can't make it without. I'm addicted to the person of Jesus Christ. I can't make it through life without the spirit that he supplies, you know? And God doesn't just understand. God sympathizes. Now, this is really, uh, I think we don't think about this very often, but to sympathize is to identify and join with us, right? So that what affects us affects him. I've had enough conversations to know that most people don't really believe this. Most people believe that when I'm hurting, when something happens to me and I'm hurting, uh, most people are mad at God because they think, well, God could have prevented this, and he didn't, and so they're angry at him. Very few people think that God sympathizes with me, and when I'm hurting, God hurts with me and identifies with me at that loving level and says, you know, when I'm crying, God cries with me. When I am experiencing grief at some loss that's happened in my life, God grieves with me. And it's a whole change in orientation when we understand the truth about what God is really like because oftentimes in our grief or in our hurt or in our tears, we're like angry at God because we think, well, you know, you could have prevented it. You're the only one. You're all powerful. Yeah, but I also am understanding. I also am compassionate. I also am sympathetic with your weaknesses, with your limitations. You can't see the big picture. You can't know what's coming in the future. You, you don't understand why I allowed this to happen in the big scheme of things. I'm asking you to trust me. I understand your tears. I'm crying with you. I understand your limitations. You don't know as much as I know. You can't see into the future like I can see into the future. You've never been to heaven like where I live up here and where these people are and, and, and so on and so forth. And I'm just asking you, will you trust me? And I understand, I empathize with you, I sympathize with you, I cry with you, I grieve with you. Um, have you ever thought that when you're ecstatic about something, that God is ecstatic? Because he empathizes with us? 
Never thought that when you're angry at some kind of evil that's going on, it really bothers you that God is angry at evil as well? Have you even ever thought that God gives expression to his emotions? Some of us think that, that God doesn't allow emotion to become a part of who he even is. And then we're much like him. Do you ever think that you have an effect on God? That you realize that you have the power to bring a smile to God's face? When you deliberately do something that you know pleases God, you have the power to put a smile on God's face. You have the power to break God's heart. When you know that God is asking you to do something and you just refuse and you say no, you turn your back on God, you have the power to break his heart. God is affected. He's not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And we have the power to affect God. Do you even think that God, you know, uh, has emotionally expressions? Uh, do you see him in Genesis, for example, after he creates everything? You know, you remember back in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, God is going through and, and creating these different things over the course of a, a week and so on and so forth. And uh, after each major accomplishment, God like steps back, looks what he did, and he says, wow, this is really good. Yeah, he evaluates, you know, he makes the, uh, the water, separates the water from the land. He's like, wow, this is really good. Makes the animals, wow, it's pretty good. Trees, plants, wow, this is really good. Then he finally, the apex, you know, he makes Adam and Eve, and he stands back, he's like, whoa, he says, this is very good. Do you think he's sitting there thinking like, all right, this is very good. Or do you think he's got this huge smile and excitement and contentment and uh, gladness on his face? And then, of course, Genesis chapter 3, right? Uh, sin comes into the world. The people choose, our original parents choose to trust Satan rather than God. And God is angry. And do you remember? God starts curse, curse, curses. He curses the serpent. Do you remember the curse that comes against the serpent? It's the first place that we get a hint that he's going to send the Messiah. Genesis 3.15. Somebody's going to come. He's going to crush your head for this. Right, he says. It's the Messiah. It's the first hint of Christmas in the Bible, way back in Genesis. And then he, he curses the woman, right? He's angry. You're going to have a hard time having kids. And then he curses the man. You're going to sweat to work and make a living. And we're still living with those curses. Do you think God has feelings? Do you think he has emotion? Do you think he, you know, is affected by us? Um, he's angry. And, uh, you know, when we fast forward in history and we... Look to the other end as to where all this is going. Uh, uh, with his Jewish people, there's a great passage of scripture in Zephaniah that kind of describes this, you know, how it's going to end up and how God is going to be victorious through Christ and because he cares and because he's compassionate, because he's a safe refuge and so on. And so listen what this says in Zephaniah, one of the Old Testament prophets, the, the Lord is, he's talking to Israel, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you and he's cleared away your enemies. This is what it's going to be like at the end. And uh, the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you'll never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let, your hands, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. This is God bursting out in song over finally realizing the plan that he has for his people. 
And then, you know, um, it, it kind of uh, expands in Isaiah chapter 25 to all nations. And this is, this is a description, Isaiah chapter 25, of the last day. And this is what it's going to be like. And we're all a part of this. And on this mountain, this is God, right? On this mountain, the Lord of hosts is going to make for all people, all people, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food, full of marrow, aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all people, the, the veil that's spread over all the nations, the blindness of people, the veil will be lifted. People will see him for who he really is, right? And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. What a party that's going to be. Are you looking forward to that day? Can you see this God just moping around on that day? This God is a, a, a compassionate, expressive, excited God who understands what it's like to be human, who creates a refuge for us when we're in a tough spot, and who has a plan for our rejoicing. And so I ask the question, are we becoming like this God? Are we becoming more expressive? Do we dare to risk living from our hearts and doing what God asks us to do from our hearts? Do we uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? Can we sympathize, empathize, identify with the feelings of others? Can we get out of ourselves and into the next person to the point where we can actually rejoice with those who rejoice and, and weep with those who weep. You remember in John chapter 15 when Jesus was here, he says, I've spoken this stuff to you so that my joy can be in you. You can't get into somebody else's joy until you first have it from God. It's so that my joy can get into you so that you then can you know, rejoice with the next person. Same with suffering. Um, can we identify with this God who... Uh, loves us and who understands us can you identify with him in his suffering and in his joy can you get to the place in your life where because of this relationship that you have with the living God the things that excite God excite you emotionally the things that make God angry make you angry some people some people have just gotten past this whole thing and you know uh, no longer are we compassionate no longer do we care about the poor no more well because we've shut down our feelings Instead of allowing, you know, that expressive heart to uh, become engaged and turn into some kind of action that would probably demand sacrifice the way Jesus sacrificed for us because of his love and make some changes. You might remember in Isaiah chapter 53, uh, this is what God was feeling about Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, Jesus. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and people esteemed him not. Here's God. He sends his best Jesus into the world to be our savior. And here's people who just reject him. And here's God upset and hurt that his own precious son would be treated and misunderstood and rejected and, and all that happened to him and so on and so forth. And yet Jesus still goes forward. And, and uh, I ask the question, are we becoming like God? 
Are we experiencing that same kind of rejection and misunderstanding? But it's okay because God identifies with us in that pain. He understands what it's like and so on and so forth. It's this mutual embrace between us and God that gives life. And it changes us from living black and white and living into, in color. It's the safety um, of an understanding God that makes us willing to risk uh, living the life that God called us to live. You know, God gave us a new spirit so that we could be like him. We're in the world to convince the world that God really does love people. And we come like Jesus came into the world as representatives of God. And I think some of us have given up on the expression of our hearts. We've lost the intensity of living with our uh, emotional side. We don't celebrate. We don't dance. We don't laugh. We don't experience the joy that God intended to enlarge our souls. Some of us don't get angry anymore at the evil in the world. Some of us don't really care about the poverty that uh, is in front of us all the time. And the Bible says, you know, be angry. But don't sin. Let your anger turn into some kind of sacrificial action that makes a difference and that communicates to the world around us there is a God and he understands our human condition and he wants to be involved, especially through the person of Jesus Christ in whose name we live and celebrate. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that you've revealed yourself in the Bible because if we were just left to our own to try to decide what you're really like, We'd get skewed ideas that come to us from so many different sources. And so forgive us, Father, if we haven't taken the time to just kind of unearth and unlock uh, the realities of your person. And I'm especially thankful, I think we all are especially thankful, Father, this morning, that you're a God who understands. And that you don't just understand, but that you sympathize with our weaknesses. We're just human beings. We're made out of dust. You said so yourself. And you remember that we're made out of dust. And so we've got these tremendous limitations compared to you. Uh, We've got uh, these uh, insecurities compared to you. We've got these fears compared to you. Uh, We've got all of this stuff, Father, that comes with being human and living in a fallen world. And we get ourselves in these predicaments, Father, by uh, living in a broken world where we need a place, a safe place, a refuge. And we're so thankful that you understand and that your arms are wide open. And that you invite us to come and to kind of cuddle up on your lap and feel your arms wrapped around us to make us feel safe and secure. And so as we wind down a year and we anticipate a a new year, we have no idea what's coming our way in 2015. But you do. What a great thing it is to have a God who we know no matter what happens, you will understand. And you will empathize so that when we hurt, you'll hurt with us. And when we're excited and and, uh, psyched, uh, you'll be psyched with us. And I thank you, Father, that we can go through life with a God like that, with a Father who understands and who relates to us on that level. Help us to take full advantage, or at least more advantage than we have in the past, of who you really are. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.